Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Frankenoak.com. Frankenoak.com is the online destination for guys who want to look sharp and shop smart. Visit Frankenoak.com and find a new collection of menswear every month. Lauren Strapagiel. Strapagiel. Ah! God damn it, Jesse! Fuck this up right first thing I see. Lauren Strapagiel. Hi. Social news editor for BuzzFeed Canada. Welcome back to Canada Land Shortcuts. Thank you. Happy to be here. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Robert Vandeweg, Jason Permanand, Amy Turner, Toby Hool, Simon Hayduck, Jessica Watney Campbell, I Can Has Chocolate, Chris, and Carl Riley. Carl, why did you decide to be awesome? Because the mainstream media in Canada has proven reluctant to ask difficult questions to those in positions of power, and I think it's important to support organizations that take this responsibility seriously. This episode is also brought to you by frankandoak.com. Lauren, I can tell you are admiring how well-dressed I am. No need to comment. I can tell that you are. Frankandoak.com, I am a customer of this company, and they are a wonderful solution to men who need to wear clothes. If you find yourself in this category, if you're a man who needs to wear clothes but who does not like to shop for them, frankandoak.com allows you to do so online with no risk. 
You order the clothes, they send you the clothes. If you like them, you keep them. If not, you send them back. Their collections change every month. You can discover the latest in stylish, affordable menswear with their monthly on-trend collections. The new collection just came out. I like it. It's like basics, but stylish basics. It's weather appropriate. This is a time of year when we neglect ourselves and wear moth-bitten sweaters. You th- No, just don't do that. Don't fall into that slump. It's an affordable season. Everything is either on sale or you use the code CANADALAND and you get 20% off of your first purchase. This is a proud Canadian company. If you have heard me talk about Frank and Oak but haven't checked them out, go check it out right now at frankandoak.com. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Did you have a good break? I had a great break. How was yours? It was heartwarming. My whole sense of myself as a Canadian, as a good person in the world, was buttressed and reinforced by the onslaught of coverage of the, the Syrian refugees coming in just in time for, for Christmas. I'm so happy for you. Um, it, it is about me, the, the Syrian refugees. Wasn't it more about us than them, all of the coverage? Don't you feel like there was just this, like, we we were just congratulating ourselves? I know what you're getting at, and I think... Yes, partly that is true. Um, We were being very self-congratulatory. I mean, um, like the photos and videos of refugees arriving at the airport and the people greeting them and the efforts done by Canadians to welcome them here. But I don't think we should be poo-pooing that necessarily. I mean, we should absolutely be talking more about refugees and what they're going through, the fact that we're not meeting targets. But I think the tonal shift since Trudeau's you know, win um, towards being positive about bringing refugees in is a notable and valuable thing. Yeah. 
I think it's wonderful for us to like remember after 10 years of having our thumbs stuck in our ears that that's something that we care about and that that's even something that's essential to our concept of ourselves. But the Syrian crisis has been going on for a while and we have like a deplorable record during the Harper years and it's not necessarily all better now. No, absolutely not. I mean, again, we're not even meeting the targets that were set by Trudeau's government. Okay, so let's listen to a bit about that because that kind of got lost in – it's not like the media didn't cover the fact that the government completely blew the targets, but the – evocative, heartwarming imagery of these families in the airport and just how that was repeated and repeated and tied in with these Christmas messages and then kind of snuck in there at a time when not that many people were paying attention to the media was the fact that they didn't do what they said they were going to do. And, and here's what it sounded like when health minister, I guess I guess Jane Philpott, the health minister, drew the short straw in cabinet because I don't know why the health minister is the one doing these interviews, but she did sort of a press tour of basically – answering for the government's failure on this. And I couldn't believe this interview when I heard it. We're going to hear like a a good little chunk of this. This is actually from New Year's Eve. So I don't know how many people actually were listening to As It Happens on New Year's Eve on December 31st, 2015. Here's Health Minister Jane Philpott. Your uh, party made such a key issue of the 25,000 refugees by the end of the year during the campaign. That was, of course, revised, and even the reduced number of 10,000 was a, a key symbol for the government, something you've been touting for weeks now. It's been noticed internationally as well and praised, but now you're not meeting the target. Do you regret making that goal, setting that goal, and making such a, a big show of it? Uh, absolutely not. I, we have no regrets for setting such an ambitious goal. As I said earlier, we wouldn't be where we are today had we not worked so hard and such an ambitious target. But saying and, it's ambitious is one thing, but you know, you've know, you told people you're going to achieve this. And in recent weeks, there doesn't seem to have been an acknowledgement that it, you're not going to make it. We can focus on that, and you're certainly welcome to, and Canadians are welcome to focus on those uh, what hasn't been achieved, but most Canadians that I've been talking to aren't concerned. They realize that a couple of weeks delay in order to do this right and to be able to address the human factors involved are not what is important in the long run. We're going to focus on what we have accomplished on the absolutely unprecedented initiative that Canada has taken. We've been a model to the world. We've been a model to the world. We've been a model to the U.S. I'll give us that. Is it, must that be where the bar <laughs> no, is set? That's a pretty low bar. No, and... and you're absolutely correct in that other nations have taken in far more refugees than Canada has. The scale of that is worth noting. And this is uh, Matthew Fisher, who is uh, Post Media's international affairs columnist, uh, longest serving foreign correspondent in Canada. He's writing in the National Post, time for a reality check on Canada's generosity towards refugees. I'm going to read a little bit of this. The orgy of congratulatory backslapping that has gripped the country for several months now is way over the top. A little perspective is urgently required. And he says, based on Canada's population, the size of our economy, we would have to accept about 670,000 refugees to match the compassion that Sweden has shown. 450,000 to match Germany. Finland, he says, has accepted 30,000 refugees since June. So this dwarfs what we're doing here. What we're doing here is nothing compared to these other countries. And it's not an apples-to-apples comparison because those countries, a lot of these refugees are showing up on foot at the border. So it's a bit of a different dynamic. But the idea that we overnight are this wonderful, generous country and like the arrogance I found of Jane Philpott in, in that interview, like 
A, you blew a campaign promise. It's a pretty pivotal pivotal campaign promise that arguably some people think that the election turned on this issue. It's not 25,000. It's 10,000. It's not 10,000. like 6,000. Like, blew it by a wide margin. But no, I think that if she had just said, you know what? Everybody out there is concerned with security. They're all going to come in. It's just going to take a little bit longer. We did mess this up and we are sorry. I think everybody would have said like, yeah, we get it. People lie during elections as long as they ultimately get here. But instead she's saying it's good that we – bullshitted everybody with the 25,000 because we we never would have gotten in what we did if we hadn't been that ambitious. And in fact, we're a model to the world. Were you expecting her to apologize, though? I mean, realistically. And I think she is right in that people are going to focus on the positive. I mean, this is not to excuse journalists who's like absolutely it's their responsibility to be reporting on the shortfall and actually supporting refugees once they're here. But People really are lapping up this positive news because it makes them feel good. And the something we see at, at BuzzFeed Canada is readers truly love a positive story, especially when it's something that gets at this Canadianness that makes us these polite, welcoming, generous people. People are going to read that a lot more than they're going to wonder about how many of the thousands we've brought in. I know, and that's dangerous. I know. Like, like isn't that more dangerous than the honesty of? The Harper administration's just, we don't care about refugees. I mean, not that they ever said that, but the the feeling during those years was that something had changed in the way we bring people in this country, that it's more about how much money you bring with you, that we do not see ourselves as, we're not going to pretend anymore that we're good people in the world. That sucked. And that was contrary to what, what being a Canadian is to me, but at least it was somewhat straightforward. The popularity of this feel-good story, like, I, I, it's not like I sneer at, at the people's desire to feel these things and to think that we are doing these great things. I just want it to be true, you know? I mean, we, and I feel like I'm just feeding to what she's saying, but we did kind of do a good thing. We did a little bit of a good thing, but not as much as a good thing as we should have done. And I wonder how long it'll last. I mean, like, we ignored this thing until the photo of Alan Curdy uh, yeah. got everybody, you know, it's in an emotional sense. And this is like, nobody's fault, just the way that human compassion works, that you hear that hundreds of thousands of people are dead, you don't care, you see a photo of a dead kid, and suddenly you're crying, and you're taking out your wallet, and you're willing to share your city with people, you know, that's that's human beings. But I guess what I feel is dangerous is that I feel that what has sort of settled is this is an idea that we, okay, we've corrected that, it's done. Yeah. And I think I think part of what was happening before, I mean, it was around the holidays. There was a lot of stories of people reuniting with their families for Christmas. And as was pointed out in that column, a lot of the refugees we have accepted are Christians, not Muslims. And I feel like people got swept up in that feeling. And I think going into the—I'm hoping going into the new year, we start taking a harder look at the numbers and not just the nice feelings. Yeah, it's a question of shedding light or heat, you know. There's a a lot of heat from the imagery and from— just seeing these families, people can relate in such a way. But the light of the data, the info, I mean, like, and I kind of feel like there was something that happened this holiday season. I don't know if I'm drawing a wild connection here. You tell me. The Bob from Calgary story, okay? What does Bob from Calgary have to do with the Syrian refugees? Tell me, Jesse, what does Bob have to do with this? So if you completely were not listening to this oft-reported and oft-repeated story, nothing we like better than feeling wonderful about ourselves than in relation to Americans. And and the New York Times revealed their top commenter of all time, the most, I guess, liked comment on the New York Times website. It was from somebody called Bob from Calgary. And it was just a nicely written little thing about how great Canada is compared to the United States, how healthcare and the gun laws and just, it really, it was just this very smug, self-satisfied thing about like, life is good here. I don't have to worry about things because we've got good public schools and we've got, you know, healthcare and no one's shooting each other. And 
it struck the same chord with me that I feel like we we don't want to actually have a reckoning. And Bob turned out to be Bob from Edmonton, and he expanded. So how do we trust him if he's actually from Edmonton? That's right. First um, of all. Yeah. You know, get your story straight, Bob. I think he was Bob from Calgary because he was just geotagged in the original. I don't think he ever misrepresented where he was from. But the point, if I have one, is that if we want to think all these nice things about ourselves, if we want to go back to our conception of ourselves, which I think was never really true. It was never really true in terms of refugee policy. It was never really true. I mean, only by comparison with a country that is both excellent and like a total lunatic can we kind of convince ourselves that we're really wonderful. And like, let's like let's not – let's put away childish things. Let's grow up. Let's try to get a concept of why we're good on our own terms that we actually earn. I, I, that's my fear with, you know, this sort of re, restart, this rebranding that Canada is experiencing right now. Well, what I'm hearing is you're not a patriot, first of all. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, no, okay. I mean, again, this goes back to, like, I really felt it when Trudeau won. I mean, I talked about this last time I was here where I spent, like, a lot of my young adult and teenage years um, living under the Harper government. And I feel like the Canada I was told was Canada Canadian identity when I was a kid didn't really match up to what Harper's Canada was, shall we say. Mm-hmm. And I feel like with Trudeau coming in, we've had this shift of, like, Oh my gosh, it's it's us again. We're back. Um, we're these lovely Canadians again. And I feel like people, it's so easy to get swept up in that, even if it isn't true. And we've always been people who pat ourselves on the back, especially for being, you know, better than Americans. But that's not new. That's been going on forever. Yeah. 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 It's it's a return to something that, that we may, maybe was a mistake to begin with. I mean, okay, do you remember Rick Mercer's talking to Americans? I feel like it's that same feeling of like, Oh my gosh, look at those guys. We're so much better. Okay, I'm going to give a rant about Rick Mercer, a mini Whoa, win. Okay. Do we have a graffiti alley? <laughs> for me to just kind of walk purposefully. Yeah. That talking to Americans thing embodied for me this Canadian smugness and self-satisfaction in the worst possible way. Why the fuck would some guy from Kentucky give a shit about who our prime minister was or whether or not we had states or provinces? Do we know who his mayor is? Like that thing was just the most... It, it was mean spirited. It was funny. It was funny for us. I mean, a it was it was funny for us. I mean, because we grew up in this culture where we know so much about American politics um, and culture, and they know nothing about us because why would they? Yeah, the message of that was that they're dumb, and that's why. A little bit. Sorry, Rick. <laughs> Many knew Phil Nolan as the drummer in the Prime Minister's band. Nolan has played in the Prime Minister's band for several years. Ottawa police have charged a teacher who is also the Sir Stephen Harper's band with sexual assault of a minor. Five counts of sexual assault, five counts of sexual interference, five counts of sexual exploitation. But it ain't rape, says Tony Spears, court reporter for the Ottawa Sun. That's what he tweeted. Well, he tweeted specifically uh, calling this relationship between a grown man and a 13-year-old who is a student a tryst. That's the word he chose to use. Yeah, that was the first tweet was he said that um, ex-Prime Minister Stephen Harper's former drummer, Stephen Nolan, has been sentenced to two years in jail for tryst with then 13-year-old girl student. And I feel like maybe this was a situation – the story itself didn't have the word tryst in it. Uh, The story itself was not good, but we'll get to that. I feel like if Tony Spears had just said, I apologize for my word choice, 
and he sort of did t- tweet later with the word tryst removed, but he never – he stuck to his guns. He stuck to the word tryst. And he said a whole bunch of other things, including it ain't rape, that I felt like, similar to our first story, if you just had said sorry, maybe— But then he'd have to admit that he was wrong. And not many male journalists are comfortable with that, I've noticed. You have written the book, or you were part of a team that wrote a guide to how the media should report on sexual assault, rape, all of these kinds of Mm -hmm. cases— What's the problem with him saying, I mean, I, I ask innocently, I mean, like, it's obviously to write that it's a tryst with a 13-year-old. I, know, but I mean, for some people, apparently, this is not an obvious problem. And yeah. so the guide is called Use the Right Words. You can find it at usetherightwords.ca. It was put together by a collective called Femifesto, and I was one of the media consultants that helped edit it. A lot of the guide is about using appropriate language that doesn't do further harm to the survivor, that doesn't excuse the acts of the perpetrator. And one of the things it recommends is not playing off what is a clear case of sexual violence as like a controversy or a salacious romance or a tryst, because that's not what it is. It's a 13-year-old girl and a grown man. That's rape no matter how you cut it. Right. And and he argued that uh, Tony Spears did. In his defense of his tweet, he was sort of inviting people to go through his files. And somebody found an earlier story that he had reported about a 12-year-old girl's uh, abuse at the hands of her 24-year-old at the time soccer coach. And in the story itself, not in his tweet, but in the story, he called them a star-crossed pair in a doomed illicit relationship. So like, I, I feel like there's kind of this pervading atmosphere in some of this reporting about you know, either it's titillating, salacious, it's gossipy, or you're kind of like, what is what is the message of describing them as like? Well, what it's getting down to is saying as if the young girls involved in those cases, who, do you remember being 13? Like, I had braces. I was not anywhere near being an adult. That these young girls are somehow consenting to an adult relationship, that there's a romance going on that's only incidentally illegal, which is absolutely not the case. And even in, so in Spears's, um even in the article that Spears published in the Ottawa Sun about Nolan, um, he, I mean, clearly says that this guy, you know, did a bad thing, but also uses words like um, keeping trophies of his conquest. Conquest. Again, we're talking about the serial abuse of a 13-year-old, not a conquest, not a romantic entanglement. I guess he could argue that he was trying to, like, he was in a judgmental way saying, oh, this scumbag thought of this abusive act as a conquest. All of it plays into... I get that. But I think another important part of the reporting guide I was talking about was asking whether you're including details because they're providing important context or because you're trying to make the story more controversial, more titillating, more salacious. Yeah. and, And that comes into a lot of coverage. I noticed this series that the Toronto Star has been doing about um, sex trafficking where they actually interviewed a pimp in jail and then they had an anonymous source, a young woman who was the victim of sex trafficking, who who, uh, was giving them all of this information under a pseudonym. And they included what appeared to be like a semi-nude photo of her in each of the articles where she's photographed topless but from the back. The nudity or the semi-nudity is only one aspect of it. The tone and atmosphere of the photo is like she's lost in shadows. Her head is bowed almost like shamefully. 
And I, I just couldn't help but wonder, like, what are the circumstances of this? Like, you've got your source who's helping you with this news story. Do you do a photo shoot where you're like, okay, take off your top and let's turn the lights down low here? And this element that I think so much of media trades on, be it like Twin Peaks with Laura Palmer's body wrapped in plastic of – we're going to get the scumbags who did it, but there's also kind of like a little bit of interest in these women's corpses, you know? Yeah. And when that comes into news coverage of minors, I, I feel like it's beyond just getting the terminology right. Like, what is the the hook of these stories? What are they trying to communicate? Well, and, and again, back to the guide, another thing it talks about is uh, the way survivors of sexual violence, and know what I'm using the word survivor, it is preferred to victim, although I think it's important to ask the survivor how they feel, how they want their story portrayed. I don't know if this um, young woman wanted a photo like that of herself. Maybe she did. Fair. But in general, you're presenting her as like this frail, damaged victim rather than someone who's resilient and has overcome a trauma. Yeah, I think that both of those stories, Lauren, were examples of almost like sympathy trolling. Like you can't have it both ways. You can't be advocating for survivors and at the same time exploiting them. You know, like writing like sexy, titillating, salacious stories. Like those things are are discordant. They don't make sense together. There's another kind of story that isn't necessarily trying to bank on anything sexual or or titillating, but it is still really problematic. And it, it popped up in this. Um, I don't know if you're following this story of this Canadian war veteran and this tragic circumstance where it seems that uh, it was a murder suicide. Yes. Um- Police suspect that he stabbed his wife, who was pregnant, before they both went over a balcony. And they're saying that the fall killed them. But it's being treated as a murder-suicide, as a homicide. We have to be careful about our language here, I suppose, because did did the fall kill them? And we don't know exactly what happened in those last moments. But the CBC's story, which I think, you know, the tone of it seemed correct to me, the first word is, is, is the woman's name. Precious Charbonneau in the headline was pregnant comma, stabbed prior to fall, police say. Canadian war veteran was responsible for the homicide of his pregnant wife who was stabbed several times before being thrown off the balcony of a downtown apartment building, Toronto police say. So that's how the CBC covered it. Later, the Toronto Star, in covering the funeral, Evelyn Kwong wrote this story. The headline is, Funeral Held for Soldier After High-Rise Deaths. They're just, they're high-rise deaths. I'll read a little bit about this because it's all in this very, like, respectful, almost reverential tone. Quite coded language. Yeah. you got to really read between the lines here. Um, If you hadn't read the first story, what would you make of this? So there are these high-rise deaths and there's this funeral for a soldier. Unanswered questions hung in the frigid December air as Sergeant Robert Giblin's body was carried into Bancroft Community Church in Sudbury for his funeral service Monday morning. It was a somber and quiet ceremony. Members of Sudbury's 33 Canadian Brigade Group of the Irish Regiment were pallbearers. The bodies of newlyweds Giblin and his wife, Precious Charbonneau, were found outside their apartment last week. They, they were It's all passive voice. And finally, the wife's name is mentioned in like the fourth graph here. Police ruled Charbonneau's death a homicide after stab wounds were found on her body. At least that's in there, but stab wounds were, were found. Ruled a homicide, were found, their bodies were found, as if he had nothing to do with her death. Which I mean— is not apparently not the case. Yeah, if you were just sort of going through the story, like, you'd have to be, like, kind of on alert and know how to read this kind of a news story to get the facts of this, which is that this seems to have been a murder-suicide and is being investigated as such. And it's not just the star. Like, there is a comment— 
uh, this, the star story, like it continues about these quotes. Robert was my friend. He was, he was a friend to a lot of people. He was an excellent soldier is one of the quotes. He gave 18 years of his life to Canada. I think a lot of this is tied up in just sort of how we deal with veterans. Right. I mean, we d- media does go out of its way to treat them with the utmost respect and understand why. And I think there is certainly a conversation to be had regarding PTSD and how we care for our veterans as a country. But that story absolutely minimizes the violence done against this woman in a way that no other coverage I saw did. It was pointed out on Twitter. It was flagged. You know, why is this woman's, you know, what seems to be her murder buried in this story? And there were people who responded really prickly, like, this is not a story about this. is This is a story about PTSD and about veterans. I'm like, well, that's not her story. This And this is what even the Department of National Defense, this is their statement. The loss of any soldier is devastating to the military community and our thoughts and condolences go out to Sergeant Robert Giblin's family and friends. That's very nice. She, I, I guess the condolences go out to the surviving family because they can't go out to his wife because she's dead too, which is yeah, not mentioned. Well, the loss of yet another woman to intimate partner violence, I think is pretty tragic. And yeah. there, were, there were two bodies involved here, and that story absolutely did not convey that fact. Looking at this stuff, and I think you know, it, it takes a couple stories that really go over the line, and then you start to see it everywhere. Am I just like noticing the trend – like, did it happen to be a week where there are a few of these? Or do you see this this kind of reporting all the time? Whoa, male privilege. Wow. <laughs> Drop that. <laughs> yeah, I see this all the time. The media has, for like its entire existence, minimized violence done against women. That's not new. What has been done with this guide that you wrote? Like, is it in practice? Again, didn't write it. Just helped edit it. It's one of the Femifesto. Okay. So good. It's incredibly useful. I've read it. I mean, also I read it to edit it, but I've read it over about 10 times since. I've encouraged all of my colleagues to read it. Um, it really, I feel like as a reporter, when you're learning how to report on sexual violence, you're taught how to protect yourself in the publication, how to make sure you use the word allegedly as much as possible. You're not really thinking about the well-being of the survivor and how you're contributing to rape culture overall, how you're contributing to cultural perceptions of sexual violence. And I think that's a shift that needs to be made. You know, I think that I had for a long time a reflexive reaction against anything called what are the right words to use. To whatever extent, I, you know, you, th- you think about free expression and a rebuke of anything to try to tell me this is the codified, formalized right words to use. I'm like, well, I'll use what words, you know, yeah. I'm a writer. I will use the words right. that describe this. I think journalists this. hate hearing from anyone who's, even from fellow journalists, that they're doing something wrong or using the wrong words. It's a tough pill for a lot of them to swallow. But it really, it does real harm when words aren't used properly. I think that when you kind of look at these all as pieces of a puzzle and you and you get beyond just somebody like the that reflexive knee-jerk response, like don't tell me, don't police my language, what is kind of subconsciously getting into your work when you don't th- think consciously about th- those well, word I choices? Well, I mean, that's the thing. That's, I mean, this is like social justice 101. Um, we're, we come up in a culture where... You know, we learn racism and homophobia and misogyny, and it it takes actual conscious unlearning to remove that um, from your consciousness and also from your work as a journalist. It it takes effort. You can't just because you've never, I don't know, called a woman a slut in a newspaper article doesn't mean that you're being good to women in your writing. Yeah. And I think that there's like a desire to get through get past any reporter doesn't want to just give the facts of here were the charges that were laid and 
I don't think there's any possible sex that a uh, person uh, uh, at the age of majority can have with a minor that is not technically, whether or not the charge is formally a rape charge, you can't have sex with a minor that isn't rape. I, no, legally it's statutory rape, like done. Whether whether that's what they ultimately decide on and like you can call it rape and it's, it's fine. Like that's what it is. Yeah, can, another, I think it might have been uh, CBC or the citizen, but someone called it molestation, which, yeah, that's a fair word to use. Yeah. Because it's calling it for what it is. It's a, it's a crime. And I mean, if we're talking about language use, Jesse, do you remember? the piece you did with Kevin Donovan about Gian Gameshi, the first one. Yeah. That bit about um, how the uh, the survivors were um, educated and employed. I mean, that's part of what we're talking about here. Maybe I'll finally talk about that. You right, want to talk about that? Right now. Yeah. Maybe I'll finally talk about that. I don't think I have before. But, uh, and I take responsibility as a co-author of that piece that like, I, I had the opportunity to say, no way is that going out with my name on it. But I'll tell you what the original thing that we had, where where it ultimately said in that first piece about Kameshi that the sources uh, were all educated and employed. My wording was originally the sources were all credible. Right, but what does that mean? Because when we talk about rape culture, part of it is talking about how we define who is and who is not a credible survivor. And that does tend to come down to things like, are they educated? Are they, do we perceive them as looking for money or attention and, and crap like that? Right. Well, I and mean, ultimately, that's where we went. Now, I do think that it's relevant when you're dealing with anonymous sources to be able to tell your audience. It does matter if the journalist, you know, we don't know. Uh, aren't they, but aren't they credible by virtue of being in your story? Right. Just we wouldn't have reported on them if we didn't find them Yeah. Why, why feel the need to mention it at all? Yeah. Well, because— Do you do that for everyone? I knew that they would come under incredible scrutiny, and I felt that it was—there was there had to be some way of telling the reader, we've met them, we heard their stories, we can't prove anything to 100 percent, shadow of a doubt, the, who's telling the truth, but we believed them. Yeah, but— So we, how do you get that across? We believe By them. reporting on it competently. I mean, I'm not saying it wasn't competent, but yeah. I mean, would you would you feel the need to say that for the, uh, someone involved in a different kind of crime? Would I, why did you? Why was your gut feeling to say that these women? Because you're saying because you knew they come under their scrutiny, and I feel like you were playing into that. By so, do you feel that, that it would have been better to have said nothing of the kind? That just it would have been inferred by the fact that they're in a Toronto Star story. That, yeah, I think by saying that they're credible, you're implying that there's a reason to find them not credible. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's an interesting point. Certainly didn't end up the right way. Using educated and employed as some sort of code, like, well, surely an you know, un, uneducated and unemployed woman has no credibility or, you know, or exactly. <laughs> like, it was what's incredibly the problematic. Yeah. Oh, no, it was, it was awful. It was wrong. Um, but, uh, yeah, I still don't know. I still don't know. You got me thinking about it now. Okay. Lauren, read the guide, think about it, stew on it and just be better. Let's all just be better. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. That was your Canada Land Shortcuts. Hope you enjoyed it. You can always email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Lauren, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Lauren Strappa. The show's website is canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. The next episode of Canada Land will be up on Monday. The next episode of Canada Land Commons will be up on Tuesday. I make this show with Katie Jensen. If you like this show, please support it. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. 
This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will let me serve in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.